Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. This is for the third full week of April, 2020, and the subject of this week was the world. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what was the subject this week? Boy, uh, you know, it, I'm not sure that there was the kind of theme, you know, in these past weeks, we've had some weeks that really there was a, a theme going through them. Um, I'm not sure so much uh, this week, although we, we bookended the week talking about the response to the coronavirus and uh, people who want our economy to be open and people who want the economy to stay closed um, and, you know, uh, good people, I think, on both sides. I know that that's, uh, yes, it's always dangerous to say something like that, but and of course, maybe some bad people on both sides. But but uh, let's start by talking about my favorite bad people, the worst people in the world, the people, you know, I, I realize that most of my political life, I feel like um, the U.S. government was my number one enemy and and not because it was the worst outfit in the world. Um, during most of my life, I would say that, you know, I mean, it was a time where, you know, I was alive when Pol Pot was running Cambodia and, and, you know, certainly, uh, he's worse than, than Trump and Bill Clinton and a whole bunch of people, uh, rolled together with all their negatives times a billion. Um, and, you know, there's been communist China this whole time, whether it's communist or not communist, totalitarian, let's kill hundreds of millions of people, let's not allow any freedom, let's hate democracy, uh, China, through my whole life. Um, but they were not much of a threat for a lot of that time to the rest of the world. Russia, whether it was the Soviet Union uh, or afterwards, now that it's you know kind of an authoritarian Putin's Russia uh, is a bad actor, a very bad actor. But for a lot of that time, uh, one wasn't necessarily much that that I could add to fighting them. Uh, and also some of that time, I think, has, you know, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, not much of a threat to the rest of the world. And so. Um, one of the big things, you know, you, you live long enough and, and sometimes you change your mind about things. And this isn't really a change, but it has dawned on me in recent years uh, that the Chinese Communist Party is the most dangerous force on the planet that keeps 1.4 billion people in bondage without any democratic check on their power. Uh, with some ability to make money that then they can glom onto, uh, but with no freedom, no freedom of speech, no freedom of association. Uh, if you want to be rich and live in chains, then you might like China, but I don't want to live in chains no matter how nice those chains are, no matter how wealthy the society I live in is, I don't want to live in chains. And so... Their threats to their own people, the concentration camps they have, their threats to neighboring places. You know, we don't think of Tibet, uh, Tibet as a neighboring place because they've grabbed it and held it and stomped on it and, and killed people and tortured people uh, almost enough that we forget that it's really kind of a separate place. Uh, same with the Uyghurs um, and, uh, and, of course, uh, we talk a lot about Hong Kong and uh, Taiwan, uh, and my printer's going to make weird noises uh, for no reason over there. But um, but we, we talk about um, Hong Kong and Taiwan because that's where the threats uh, for China to do bad things like Tiananmen Square uh, are still there. And... You know, in Taiwan, in fact, in the last like 24, 48 hours, again, China has come with ships, military ships to threaten uh, and, and get into Taiwanese uh, uh, waters, get right up to the, the edge. They have uh, flown into Taiwanese airspace, so on and so on. 
But really the big news, which happened last weekend, um, or the biggest, uh, threat, they have so many threats against people that sometimes, you know, you have to kind of juggle which one of the uh, ridiculous threats, you know, evil things they're doing uh, make, you know, is the worst. But this last week, while the world, again, has to deal with not the China virus, not even really the Wuhan virus, but the CCP virus, um, China is busy arresting. And I say China, you know, Hong Kong is, it's uh, one country, two systems, but the reality is it's one system increasingly. They made, China made certain agreements that they would recognize the freedoms in Hong Kong for a certain period of time that runs out in 2047, but it's not running out in 2047, it's running out in 2020 and in 2019. And uh, they are, uh, this last weekend, 15 different people arrested, uh, longtime pro-democracy people, uh, the, the publisher of Apple Daily, uh, who's a longtime pro-democracy uh, activist. And, and what crimes are they accused of committing? They're accused of using what we would call the First Amendment. They're accused of assembling and protesting without the express written permission of the, you know, the puppets of the butchers of Beijing. Uh, Hong Kong's government is, the chief executive is a stooge for the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, it is, the, the Hong Kong government is the Beijing government. And that's the problem. And that's why, you know, the people in Hong Kong have, have taken such risks. And that's why today I'm wearing free Hong Kong. And, and it's interesting, so often, uh, especially early on in the protest is people would say things like, you know, stand for freedom, you know, stand up for Hong Kong, free Hong Kong. The, the little twist on it that was made by the authorities there was that somehow we're trying to separate Hong Kong and, and take Hong Kong away from China. And the reality is the, the pro-democracy people in Hong Kong weren't saying that. I haven't been saying that. Other people around the world, I mean, it doesn't matter so much what I'm saying, but other people around the world aren't saying that. We're saying free Hong Kong. Stop stomping on their right to speak out and to be free. And to China, that does probably, to the Communist Party there, uh, to Xi Jinping, that probably does sound like separated. But the truth is, I hope before I leave this planet, uh, before the end of my days, that not only are the people of Hong Kong free, and not only are surrounding countries free of the threats of the CCP, but that the 1.4 billion people in China have some freedom. And so there's no, there's no goal here to separate Hong Kong from China. The goal is to free China and free Hong Kong and leave the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party that has killed more than a hundred million Chinese, to leave them in the dustbin of history. That's the goal. Has nothing to do with separating Hong Kong. Now on Tuesday, you actually did treat of China. You actually had a piece yes. on China. It's called uh, follow, follow the Media Money. Follow the Media yes. Money. Yes. Uh, and and uh, media is in, in parentheses because we always hear the phrase follow the money. You know, the, the media follows the money. And of course, increasingly, I, I've come to realize that a lot of times if I'm working on an initiative project um, that usually folks like The New York Times and The Washington Post don't like my politics, Boy, they want to follow the money. But I notice a lot of times when they're writing stories about initiatives that they do like, that there's hardly any talk whatsoever about the money. Who's interested in where the money comes from if it's a good initiative? If it's not a good initiative, then we're interested in where the money came from. And again, it just shows that what we receive from the mainstream media, in this case particularly, the Washington Post and the New York Times, is 
what their narrative thinks it's okay, what they think because of their narrative, which is we need bigger and bigger and bigger government. Everything should be decided by elites in Washington. And they don't say it quite that way, but that's that's exactly what they believe. And and that narrative has to be first and foremost. And therefore, we're only allowed to hear the news that fits that narrative. And sometimes, um, like, uh, and we haven't done a commentary on this, but it took weeks for the Washington Post and the New York Times to cover uh, the allegation that Joe Biden raped a staffer um, and uh, or sexually assaulted uh, a, a staffer. And I think that doesn't fit their narrative, but they eventually had to cover it because everybody else was covering it. And when they couldn't hold the lid on the information, when they could not deny their readers the knowledge, then to save face, they decided to publish it. That's the world we live in. Our free press is so jaded and corrupted that we, I mean, it just, it's almost silly to call it a free press because it doesn't promote freedom, it doesn't like freedom, and it doesn't give us straight facts because they're scared to death that we might use those facts to opt for freedom. And that's not what they want. Now, that's a long lead in (laughs) to the situation about follow the media money. But there was uh, Arthur Bloom, who writes for uh, the American conservative, and we actually mentioned him last week just as something we were going to be talking about on the podcast last week. If you'll remember, I'm sure you've been studying, you know, making notes and everything. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, last week we did mention uh, that story. He was on Tucker Carlson. Uh, I read his articles, a very short article in the American Conservative. Uh, and he was looking at the media and the way the media has uh, been co-opted by uh, China. And the, the interesting point that he kind of played off of is that the polls show that the American people overwhelmingly, there was a poll at the end of, of March that showed 70% of the American people, I believe it was 69 to be precise, 69% in the poll blame China for the worldwide spread of the coronavirus, for this pandemic. And yet he pointed out, that's not the media line that they're getting. That's not what they're getting from the Washington Post and the New York Times. That's not what they're getting from ABC, NBC, CBS, from CNN. And he thought that was interesting, that that's where the public is but that our media is somewhere else. And he asked the question, well, why is our media somewhere else? And of course, look, you know, we don't have evidence that, you know, they're on the phone with Xi Jinping and, and he's telling them, hey, cover it this way, Washington Post, or cover it that way, uh, New York Times. But think back to following the money. It is true that the China Daily, which is a state-owned. Now, everything in China is actually state-owned. They pretend that some of it is private. But the moment that the government wants to take it all, they just take it all. And there's no, there's not a judicial system there that's going to, oh, no, we've decided the government doesn't have the power to take it. The government has the power to take anything they damn well please in China. And that's how it works. And so, but this isn't even, this doesn't even have a fig leaf. This is state-owned media in China that has paid the Washington Post and the New York Times millions, millions of dollars to run advertisements, oftentimes advertisements, especially online, that look like regular news stories. And that because they're being brought to you by the Washington Post or the New York Times, there's certainly some indication that the New York Times and the Washington Post has looked at these pieces and doesn't see them as just blatant propaganda 
from a totalitarian country, well, you would be wrong. They are blatant propaganda, pretending to be news, and facilitated by the Washington Post and the New York Times while they rake in millions of dollars. Now, if a politician was getting millions of dollars from somebody, that would be big news. And both of those outfits would be questioning whether they were loyal to the people, to their constituents, or in this case, with the Post and the Times, their customers, or are they more loyal to the people who are writing them big, fat, million-dollar-plus checks? Well, and I say that if you were a politician, both of those papers would follow the money. I meant if you were a politician they didn't like. If you're a politician who has the same political beliefs as the Washington Post and the New York Times, have no fear. They're very, very unlikely, unless your you know, receipt book from everybody who's paying you off spills out in public and some other outfit sees it and starts to write stories, then the, the two papers might be embarrassed enough that they would cover it. But the reality is they are on the take with the CCP. That's right. Our two most prestigious newspapers the two newspapers that almost anywhere you go in this country, unless you're talking about the Chicago Tribune or the L.A. Times, but if you're talking about the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, a paper I'm familiar with because that's where I'm from, or you're talking about the paper in Shreveport, Louisiana, or in Des Moines, or, or around the country, you, a lot of those stories you will notice if you look underneath the byline are coming from the New York Times and the Washington Post. And so it's pretty serious when they are taking this money. Now, they still cover some of these issues. And it doesn't mean, I think, that every time they write a story, they're double checking what does the, you know, what, what did China want us to, to cover or not cover? But it does mean that they have it in their head, hey, I might want to cover or not cover stuff. You know, if uh, someone's alleging something bad's happening in China, man, let's make sure it rises to a really high level of certainty before we cover it. Whereas if something bad was happening in another country and you're hearing about it, you might cover it just a little bit sooner. In the same way that I'm convinced if the allegation of sexual assault that was made against Joe Biden had been made against Donald Trump, the Washington Post and the New York Times would have printed it right off the bat. Now, I can't prove that it's an unprovable thing, but I'm just saying in my heart of hearts, I'm convinced that the Washington Post and the New York Times have a double standard. They will not print things against Biden that they would print in a heartbeat against Donald Trump. And the same is likely to be true when it comes to China, that they are going to be more scrutinizing of any bad news about China because they know if they start printing a bunch of bad news about China, they have a price to pay. What should they do? They should never, ever, 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 ever take money from a foreign government to run advertisements in their paper. And if they ever, ever, ever do, they ought to look at it and say, is this just blatant propaganda, in which case we are rejecting it. They reject advertisements all the time. But they don't reach in. They, they sure have printed a lot of propaganda, a lot of BS from China in their publications. That's a very serious thing. Now, you might think, well, this is one little thing. Well, there's, there's lots of different stories. But the other story that popped up that really um, was the thing that, because I knew about this with, with uh, <clears throat> the Washington Post and the New York Times for some time. I, I get the Washington Post. Um, blame my wife. I, I, I don't want to keep receiving it, but she does. Um, she's really a lovely woman other than that. That's the one thing. Anyway, uh, but 
I so I see these, and I, it just makes me livid every time I see them. But we also got the story from Bloomberg. Bloomberg News had killed a story about the excesses of the wealthy Politburo in China, just like in Soviet Russia, just like in any closed society where they're telling people, hey, we all, you know, I'm sure Pol Pot, he wasn't one of the guys in Cambodia who was starving. Millions starved, but it wasn't Pol Pot and his insiders that were starving. No, it never is. And we saw the same thing in Russia, that the Politburo in Russia, the higher ups, were getting all kinds of things. They weren't really, you know, uh, commiserating with the proletariat. They were telling the proletariat to get to work and they were flying off to their, uh, you know, their uh, weekend getaways. So there was a story about all the excesses of these upper echelon uh, CCP members in China. And they had a, a great story, they thought, the reporters uh, felt, and then all of a sudden it was dead. They weren't going to do the story, but it wasn't just that they killed the story. They pressured the main reporter into signing uh, one of these uh, statements. I, I can't, I don't know why I can't think of what the uh, uh, non-disclosure agreement. And of course, Bloomberg, during the campaign, uh, the two things that strike me the most, oh, I guess other than him spending, you know, half a billion dollars and, and uh, proving to anyone who doubted how little uh, money matters when you have a bad message or a bad messenger. But uh, Bloomberg, during the campaign, had said things about China that uh, Xi Jinping wasn't a dictator, that he has a constituency that he has to please. And the implication, of course, that somehow he had to please the Chinese people. No, he can put millions of them into concentration camps and, and beat them out of their religious and cultural uh, identities. He doesn't have to please them in any way. Now, you could argue, if you were kind of silly, uh, and Bloomberg apparently is a very silly man, um, you could argue that he had to please the, the 25 Politburo members who make the decisions for the 1.4 billion people in China. But even that's pretty ridiculous. So he, he basically told us, look, uh, China, you know, kind of, kind of like Biden, you know, oh, they're good folks. Well, you know, maybe not so. But, uh, but he, he soft-pedaled the totalitarianism in China. And maybe part of the reason is because Bloomberg News makes a bunch of money by being in China. And they want to stay in China. And that's why they killed the story. The other big thing that take away from his campaign was that he had lots of non-disclosure agreements with women. And we don't know because, of course, there's no disclosure. Uh, we don't know precisely what all those are about, but we have a pretty good idea from different media reports that he apparently liked to say sexist things. Um, and perhaps like to do sexist things. And some of these women didn't really take kindly to that. And, uh, and so they, you know, threatened lawsuits or launched lawsuits. And all of a sudden, some agreement was made, maybe some money changed hands, and they signed a non-disclosure agreement so that years later, uh, if they decided, well, I really wish the world knew, well, the world's not going to find out. So not only did, did Bloomberg News push this reporter for a non-disclosure agreement, they thought that they could browbeat his wife into signing, who didn't work for them at all, into signing a non-disclosure agreement. That didn't work out so well. Finally, the news breaks, NPR uh, had, a, had a, a long story about it in an interview with some of the people involved, uh, particularly the, the wife. And now we know that, yes, Bloomberg News kills stories that totalitarian dictators don't like. And so you realize this is, you know, we, we don't know exactly what has been killed or not killed by The Washington Post or The New York Times as they're taking the dirty money from the CCP in China. 
But we do know that Bloomberg News has killed stories, has denied us, their prospective customers, knowledge and news to please the dictator in China. And uh, it's, it's, it is a sad story, and we can only guess to what degree that's true at the Times or the Post. But ladies and gentlemen, we have a problem. We have a problem. China's a big place. They've got money. They can buy people off. And I think unless we as consumers of news start to pay attention, they're going to buy our whole darn society off. Well, that's a chilling thought. Um, it sure is. <laughs> on Wednesday, uh, you moved from the fourth estate to the fifth estate, talking about Facebook and instead of talking about China, talking about the China virus. So I guess you combine two things there uh, with uh, Facebook and its policies regarding what people may say about the science of the coronavirus. Well, and it, it wasn't just the science of the coronavirus. It was specifically, and uh, there's been some of that too. There, look, there's been all kinds of problems with Facebook uh, deciding to ban different things. And uh, this, this latest case was them saying that they were going to block uh, posts that talked about some of these rallies and tried to organize rallies to say, hey, open up our, our state, open up our area of the state, open up our city. Particularly Michigan had a, a big protest. Other places have had protests now. But there were, there were two reports. Uh, well, there was a report by uh, a CNN reporter that he had been told by Facebook that both Nebraska and New Jersey, that government officials in both states, had urged them to block uh, the social media posts on Facebook talking about how we can get together to protest. Now, one of the most, one of the most wonderful thing about social media uh, is that people can organize on social media. Uh, a lot of the early Arab Spring uh, uh, protests uh, years ago were organized on social media. Uh, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine <clears throat> had a, a tremendous uh, amount of social media and, and very, very important. Same is true in, in uh, South Korea where things happened and, and other places. So social media is, I mean, to me, the best thing about it is it's a way to communicate without having to go through some of the elite media, which sometimes can be bought off. I don't know how I came to that idea, but sometimes can be bought off by those in power, even those in power on the other side of the world. Um, and so that's a beautiful thing. But if they can just clamp down on social media, I mean, in, in India, there have been parts of the country uh, where they just turned a kill switch on the entire Internet for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, so, you know, we see this wondrous uh, thing, the Internet and social media. But if we don't protect it from tyrants, big and small, uh, it's not so wonderful anymore. And, and so this, this was now, now both New Jersey and Nebraska, uh, officials have said, we did not push Facebook to do this. So we don't know for certain. I tend to think that there was some push. I also tend to, to, to know that they have been, you know, Zuckerberg, who's no, no buddy of mine, but Zuckerberg has been pulled up to Congress to testify so that they could rake him over the coals a little bit. So they have certainly been threatened with regulation, meaning regulation in air quotes, meaning we can do things to you because we have the power of the government. And so, you know, they can easily say, hey, we didn't we didn't censor anything. We just threatened your business. In the same way that, you know, if that works, then the guy who says, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to kill you later in court when you have him up for terroristic threatening, he can say, I didn't kill him. So I get to go free. Right. No, no. 
this this sort of government coercion, which is what it is, um, is antithetical to the First Amendment, and it is a serious, serious problem. Now, if it were true that the government has done nothing and Facebook just wants to regulate as a private business, wants to regulate people's statements and so on, um, well, then fine. But there's going to be a pushback. And I know there was one uh, very liberal friend on on Facebook uh, in discussing this particular uh, commentary who said, hey, if conservatives can't get their own, you know, uh, social media, well, then that's tough. But what that will lead to is more separation because we don't have any any fair uh, platform in which to speak with one another. There'll be just more separation and more separation. And, you know, it, it, you can't on the one hand decry that we're all hearing our own echo chamber and then say tough if you don't like it when this particular platform constantly is slashing what you have to say and and blocking it and trying to control things to reward one side of a political issue. And of course, the, the one of the points we made is this is, in essence, people talking about, you know, some people have argued uh, they're breaking the law. And of course, that's one that's pretty questionable because a lot of the people who went to these protests stayed in their own car. Uh, they didn't do anything that would spread this virus. Now, some did, but those were small in number. Although if you watch media reports, you would have thought almost everybody was outside their car, hugging each other, kissing each other, you know, uh, you know, licking uh, stop signs, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, it, was, it, it because the, the coverage of it was almost at least in what I saw on on cable news and, and ABC, NBC, CBS, uh, almost all of it was very negative. Now, again, we live in a in a time in which the media picks sides. And and so that's that's the way it is. But but this is a real problem. And it's the biggest part of the problem is that it is not just a private business making a decision. It is a private business arguably being asked to censor, but also a private business being asked to censor that has been threatened before with all kinds of government retaliation. And if it were only just the private business making a decision, it's not a good decision. It is a bad decision that will have repercussions for those of us who use Facebook. And it will mean that sooner we will not be using Facebook. And it does mean that this wonderful mechanism to allow regular people to get together and to be politically active will not just be crushed in places like India or in places like China, but will be crushed in reality, whether you think it's okay or not, will be crushed in the United States of America. Not good. Speaking of the great divide, you were just talking about the, the differences between people. Uh, on Fridays, you kind of talked about that at greater length. Yes, and, and uh, it, you know, there is a, a real divide, I think, um, left and right, on this coronavirus, at least on the on the response to it. And of course, um, the left tends to be more urban centered and the right more, uh, you know, more rural, uh, at least on average. And of course, it's the urban areas that have gotten hit harder. Uh, so they're, you know, more concerned about it, more frightened about it. Uh, and that's you know fairly natural. It's uh, they have a, a bigger threat, but I think there's also um, a, a view out there that the government has to take over things. And really, we talked about a, a piece that was written by Brian Doherty uh, at Reason, 
And he was looking at the, the way that in many ways, you know, one expert says this and one side says, oh, that's facts. And then another expert says something else. And that's the facts. Uh, we do tend to talk past each other. I think that, um, you know, it, it, one, I think, and I, I read a piece by uh, Ari Armstrong, a uh, guy out of Colorado, um, writer and somebody I know from from uh, years ago at the Sam Adams Alliance when uh, he I, I was uh, awarded. I gave him the award for, I think, blogger of the year or something, but a uh, very smart guy. And he was he was making the point that, you know, let's stop snitching on each other and let's stop, you know, calling everybody a Nazi and, and you know, normal things like that. That, of course, you know, we had that problem even, even before the lockdowns and, and so on. There is the problem that we don't know a lot about this virus. It's new. And that's a big problem. It's made worse by folks who want to talk authoritatively about it and who every time they get the latest fact wants to act like that now means that they know everything about it. And, you know, we talked about it weeks ago when we talked about face masks and how, you know, the we were being told by all the medical establishment on high and all the politicians and everybody else that we didn't need face masks. And then it turns out, yes, we really do. And in fact, I, I read something, I can't remember where it was, uh, just today or yesterday, about someplace where they were going to arrest people for not wearing face masks. So first of all, they tell us don't wear them, and then they're going to arrest us if we don't wear them. Um, but I think it all, to me, it boils down to this. We, and, and I'll, I'll preface this to, to finish that thought that I think I didn't finish. People who want to open up the economy want to do it because they think that's the best route. People who don't want to open it up, open it up want to not open it up because they think that's the best route. So, you know, let's, let's start there that maybe everybody on the other side, not that there aren't some, but everybody on the other side, wherever you are, is not there because they're terrible, evil people. We're trying to figure this thing out. Here's what I'll put out there. Persuasion is better than force. Freedom is better than a list of orders coming from on high. I think that we wouldn't have some of these protests if governors would have said and mayors would have said, you know what, this is a big problem. Here is what we are urging every person in my city and my state to do. It also might have been better had they said, especially if you're in a state like Texas, to say we are urging everybody in the metropolitan Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, Austin area. But if you're in West Texas in the middle of nowhere, and there's one hospital and there hasn't been or there's uh, a case of COVID-19 or there have been three in the whole county, which is big as some of the states back east. Um, maybe then someone who's waiting to get a bypass surgery ought to go into the hospital and get that bypass surgery. You know, we're, we're hearing all kinds of reports of people who are dying of things that could be treated but the hospitals aren't treating them because they're waiting for the surge of coronavirus patients. We want people at all levels of society to keep their thinking caps on and working and to be making decisions. The strength of our society is not that we can shut down Wuhan in a second and threaten everybody who wants to leave or leave their home. We're not communist China. And we don't want to be. That's not the best approach. We, we ought to let freedom work for us. And it doesn't mean that there's not going to be somebody who does the wrong thing. There is going to be. But you know what? When you issue orders, somebody's going to not obey those orders. We, you don't live in a, in a world where you just get to flip switch and, and, and human beings do what you say. So don't lie to us. Respect us. 
treat us as free human beings and then tell us what you think we ought to do. And I think you're going to see 99% compliance and you're going to see people less willing to snitch on their neighbors and more willing to find out what's going on. And when their neighbor's doing something that they don't think is right, they might actually, actually ask their neighbor. Instead of calling the cops, ask their neighbor, hey, what are you doing? And their neighbor may say, I'm going to mow the yard. Because you know what? Being out in the sunshine is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. I mean, some people are acting like these lockdowns are putting us all under house arrest. I don't believe that's the case anywhere. Um, I posted a picture on my personal Facebook page this week of the tennis courts that have been padlocked in our area. Now, my daughter and I and a friend of mine uh, that, that we play were able to find other courts that weren't. But we went to several that were padlocked, including the high school courts that, of course, uh, you know, are everybody's courts. And some people suggested the reason for that was that people were coming out and playing non-social distancing sports. You know, tennis is a pretty good social distancing sport. So is golf. You don't have to stand next to each other. You're not, you're not posting up on people when you're playing tennis or golf. And, you know, you're playing basketball or soccer or football. Uh, you know, there's going to be more contact. But the truth is, the way that we are now finding out that this virus does not do very well outside, especially in the sunlight, if it's a sunny day, you know what? You may be safer out playing basketball and sweating on each other, perspiring, as my father would, would correct me, um, than you would be sitting at home, you know, where something might have been brought into the house that had the coronavirus on it. Um, let's have some respect for each other as free human beings, and, and I think we would be so much further ahead and I think you would see tremendous compliance, tremendous compliance. I, you know, I'm not Mr. Compliance. I actually, in, in younger years, uh, went to jail on civil disobedience because I wouldn't register for the draft. I have a lot of respect for people who don't follow the rules when they believe there is a higher law. But I said early on in this crisis that I was going to give the benefit of the doubt to any public official. That's also with term limits and other things. I'm not known to like bend over backwards for politicians. I think that they're usually not doing very good things and they have a, well, there's all kinds of problems, but I'm going to be very understanding and forgiving for elected officials and other officials who make mistakes as long as they're trying to do the right thing. But, you know, and, and one of those mistakes might be overreaching. But, and so I'm, I'm going to be more forgiving than I usually would be. But I think that I hear so many people who have this attitude that if we just are told what to do and do it, that there's, there's no problems. And let's face it, if, if the best thing from the total number of lives lost would be to stay inside and, you know, not go outside and be locked down and watch the economy have all kinds of problems, um, that's, you know, that we may find that out in the end. We also may find out that that has been absolutely disastrous. And it seems that what I'm saying is let's listen to each other's arguments, but let's let people be free. Because in a lot of areas of this country, I think it's obvious that they could be open right now. And even in some of the other areas, we're finding out a lot of you know, new information that says that what we were told weeks ago was not correct. So it, again, that's an argument for not allowing the experts to constantly tell us everything we're going to do. It actually jumps back a little bit to Mondays, which we didn't really talk about too much. And Daniel McKernan wrote a really excellent piece and made the point that economies aren't things you can just turn on and turn off. And I, I think that there's a lot of people who, you know, think that somehow there's some magic that we just turn the economy back on and everything works uh, like it's a light switch. 
And we have to recognize that our society is a very complex political economic mechanism, organism. Um, I think that means it's living, so it's not an organism, but it is in, in essence an organism in that we're living and we are fueling that. And, and so, you know, one of the points he made and that we made off of it is that when this whole situation creates huge problems, this whole situation is government commanding us. It's not a free market economy out there working. It's government telling the free market economy to shut down and dictating a lot of the rest of the economy. It's government splurging not billions, but trillions of dollars. And that when we get to the end of this and the economy has been damaged and it takes time for that economy to come back to life, we are going to hear some of these people who were most adamant that the government knows everything best and it should just take care of everybody and we'll all sit in our houses and just wait for the checks to arrive. Um, you know, we all have Netflix, don't we? So we'll be watching TV. It'll be wonderful. Make some popcorn. And, uh, you know, those same people are going to be grousing that capitalism has failed us, that the free market doesn't work after they, as we point out, after they've kicked it and stomped it and knocked it on the ground and stomped it some more. And it doesn't immediately get up and, you know, dance and sing. It's going to be capitalism's fault. So we're just let's just put that out there. Mark my words. Um, you will see that we should jump to our last script that we haven't talked about, which is also a divide, I think, in our country. Um, one that you don't uh, I, I don't think it's as divided. But it's it's interesting to me the different perspectives people sometimes have, and that's homeschooling. Uh, my kids were homeschooled. My oldest uh, went to school for a couple of years, uh, did not go to a public school, but went to private schools uh, through second grade, I think. And um, and then my middle daughter uh, went to kindergarten and part of first grade um, in a private school. And one of the reasons we pulled her out of that private school is because she was way ahead. This is a kid who, you know, uh, we'd go on vacation and in the car, you know, we'd play different games and she would want us to ask her math problems. I mean, <laughs> 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 she's never did that. I never did that. I never asked for a math problem ever. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, this is, uh, this is unheard of, but so she was in, in class and they were doing math that, of course, she had done years before that. And my wife, this was a class of about 10 or 12 kids and my wife uh, and two teachers, one teacher and one assistant. I mean, this was like, you know, incredible. We wish that the whole world could be this way, except it still didn't work because my wife says, hey, she'll do all the work you're doing, but could you give her some additional problems or something to keep her motivated and so she doesn't get bored. And my wife was told, well, no, we couldn't do that because then she'll, she'll be way ahead still. And it's as if, you know, this is the whole, I, we hear all the time. And I don't want to go a long rant on this because this is our last script. And some people have lives to live other than just listen to this podcast. But, but we're always told about these gaps, that we've got to close the gap. Let's not close any of the gaps. Let's lift people up. Let's teach people more about math and science and reading and, and literature and, and how, to, how to write and, and so on. Let's, let's do all of that. But let's not close the gaps because if we're focused on closing the gaps, the easiest way to close them sometimes is to hold people back. And that's not what we want. We want, you know, this, this wonderful kid was into math. Everybody's not into math. I'm, you know, I'm not, never going to be that good at math. That's okay. It's okay. I don't want to, I don't want, you know, quantum physics to be held back because I didn't particularly like a, uh, algebra. I mean, come on. So anyway, uh, but, but that's why 
we ended up homeschooling her and and my youngest we homeschooled throughout um and and i say we homeschooled a lot of people have this attitude that that's you know the mom or the dad you know you somehow have a desk in your house and the mom and the dad you know acts like the teacher and lectures all day that's not how it works i mean maybe it does somewhere i don't think so but more and more, there's been a community of homeschoolers, people who know stuff about a certain subject, offer help, people get together. Um, it's a stone soup, if people are familiar with that type of way to do it. Stone soup is where, you know, all you've got is stone. And then you ask for water and you ask for a little flavoring and maybe someone brings uh, some chunks of meat and all of a sudden you've got this wonderful uh, soup. And, and that's a lot of how it worked. But, you know, my kids, as they got into high school years, went to the community college for a lot. Now, they still, you know, we still did stuff at home. And I helped every once in a while, not very much, but about the stuff I knew something about, history or politics, you know, I could be helpful. And and so it it really became more of a of a collective effort where homeschoolers were helping each other anyway. What brings us to that to this subject is that there was an article in Harvard Magazine, and it was all about how homeschooling should be banned, and it should be banned because these for three basic reasons: one, that homeschooling kids deserved a meaningful education. And they couldn't get that at, at, with homeschoolers because homeschoolers aren't required to be licensed and don't have to have PhDs or master's degrees or whatever. Now, the reality is on all the standardized tests, homeschoolers are beating public school students and private school students and by a measurable amount. But that's just standardized tests. We also see that homeschoolers are going to Harvard and Yale and Stanford and all kinds of schools. They are doing very, very well. So that argument, you can say whatever you want about being licensed or not or how smart the, you know, the particular parent is. The outcome proves without any doubt that collectively homeschoolers are doing better than public school students. So to ban it because somehow they're not getting a meaningful education, well, it's, it's laughable if it weren't so nasty. The other argument, no, there's two more, but the, the second argument is that homeschoolers, there was one case in California somewhere where these parents homeschooled their kid, um, their kids, and they were torturing and abusing their kids. Now, there are also kids who go to public schools who are tortured and abused. It seems silly to argue that we ought to abolish public schools because, and, and actually in looking at some of the research on this, I found that there's one study that estimates that 10% of kids who go to parochial and uh, private and, and uh, public schools are sexually mistreated, 10%. Now, that seems horrifyingly uh, a large number, and, and I hope that that's overstating it. But any way you slice it, you cannot blame every you know, homeschooler because one homeschooler was a lunatic psychopath. That is going to happen. There are lunatic psychopaths in the public schools, too. It doesn't mean that all public schools are bad. And so the, but the evidence is zero absolutely zero that you are more likely to be abused if you're homeschooled than in a public school. In fact, what evidence exists suggests you are more likely to be abused in a public school than if you're homeschooled. Now, the author of this, this paper and then the, the person who wrote the, uh, um, and it was uh, the, the paper, I should mention her name so that we can all remember Anytime we're reading anything she does, that, that she wrote this. But uh, the author of the, of the article uh, was uh, Aaron O'Donnell in, in Harvard Magazine. The 
Harvard law professor who wrote a paper for Arizona Law Review that was being talked about is named Elizabeth Berhalet. And, uh, and I'm sure I've mispronounced her name, but you can go to our website, thiscommonsense.com, and you can see it spelled out. And by this is God, commonsense.org, Paul. Oh, this is commonsense.org. Yes. We're now a .org. Ooh. Let's remember commonsense.org. Anyway. And I'm the last, you know, I'm the last to get the memo. Uh, but anyway, or at least to, to be able to read it with uh, comprehension. Um, but if you go to thisiscommonsense.org, uh, the name of the, of the article is End Educational Freedom Now, which seemed to be what she was saying. And you can, uh, you can try your own pronunciation of the name. Um, but no evidence of what she's saying. She didn't seem to need it. Harvard Magazine doesn't seem to need any evidence. They just print stuff that people make outrageous claims. But the third claim was that this homeschooling was going to be disastrous to our democratic society. And the reason is because homeschoolers, a lot of them, most of them, according to certain surveys, and I'm not so sure this is accurate, and a lot of people who are conservative Christians uh, and our homeschoolers have kind of agreed, at least in, in my area and in, in Northern Virginia, I'm not so sure that a majority of the, of the homeschooled students or families are conservative Christians. But of course, bully for them if, if they are. I mean, what's the deal? You're allowed to be a conservative. You're allowed to be a Christian. You can even put them both together if you want. That's, that's what freedom's about. But that seemed to be the real impetus for shutting it down, is that th these educators and experts at education don't like the idea of people freely choosing their own cultural and religious ideas. This goes back to a great divide. And thank goodness, on, when it comes to homeschooling, the divide is, is not 50-50. Most people are just fine if someone wants to take the time to educate their own kid to, to say, hey, bully for you, way to go. And that's what we should be doing. But, but that's, I think, was the real impetus. And again, it's this use of the term democracy to mean my side wins. If your view of democracy is that when you win, when you get to dictate something, that's democracy. And if you don't get to dictate, that's a destruction of democracy. Well, you're full of it. And uh, more and more we hear this idea that somehow, um, you know, anything that's not my position, and this is coming from the left, I'm sure the, the right maybe has similar things somewhere. Um, but, but coming from the left, a lot of you know, this is anti-democratic. Well, why is it in? And, you know, we held a vote. How is that? We used to be told that term limits was anti-democratic. I was thinking, this has come about by referendum after referendum after referendum where the people voted by overwhelming numbers. How is that anti-democratic? Well, it says that we can't vote for the incumbent. No, it doesn't say we can't vote for the incumbent. The people said, we don't want that incumbent to be able to serve any longer. That's a democratic vote. And in fact, as someone who worked on terms, when people would bring this up, I would always say, look, I don't want there to be term limits anywhere where the voters don't want them. So anywhere where they vote down term limits, I'm against term limits in those jurisdictions because I don't believe you ought to limit politicians unless that's what the voters voted for. So it's, it's a, you know, the whole idea of they're trying to protect democracy is complete hooey. And they know it, and I know it, and everyone else knows it. But it's the same with this educational idea that somehow we have to force everybody into the same school to be taught by them, or we don't get democracy. These are the same people who believe in diversity but want everyone to be forced to, to think the same way. And uh, let's have freedom. That's, that creates tremendous diversity because then people can make up their own minds. And especially when you see all the evidence 
is behind homeschooling being better, not the same, not as good as better than than the public schools. And yet the public schools, at least a lot of folks who want to, you know, say I'm for public schools, too many of them believe that somehow we can't allow freedom because freedom won't serve their interests. Well, what, what they're really saying is, I want you to be forced into my educational system. I don't want there to be any freedom. Well, there we go. I think that's a week of this week in common sense. A week of this is commonsense.org. We actually have to, have to get that in there one more time, just in case people don't realize that we have to go to a new website until we get it all sorted out. It's all the common sense that's uh, fit to utter for today. There you are. And uh, your common sense with Paul Jacob on Facebook. And a lot of activity goes on there. Yes. Yes. So please check us out on Facebook. And, uh, and of course, um, we're on SoundCloud. And we're on uh, Stitcher. And we will soon be, if we can get responses to come back, on iTunes and uh, other medium. Very good. Okay. Well, I think it's a week. That's great. I will talk to you probably some other day. <laughs> and everybody else will see you back here in a week with this week of common sense sounds great tim thanks okay. Bye.